0: Good evening, Derek. How are you?
1: Yeah, good. Neil yourself?
0: Yes, That's looking it. forward to another, what I'm sure will be an enlightening and entertaining historian's episode with
1: Emer O'Callaghan, I believe. Yeah, indeed. And really, it's a, it's a it's a book I think is very important, and I think it's a book he's going to tell us that was written really by chance a message from the gods or the stars to to write it i'm really looking forward to to hearing about it because it it paints a really accurate portrait because it's not necessarily based all on memory this is a diary from from the time and Um, what is the name of the book derek it is belfast days and it is about being a teenager in belfast in 1972.
0: right well i was born in 1971 so we're we're of the same age bracket, but I'm more interested in listening to what Emer has to say yeah. rather than listening to me prattle on. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, introducing Emer and Callan. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome. Now, Derek obviously has introduced yourself and and your good book there. Emer, can you tell us a little? You're going to read a little bit from it. I,
2: I'll read a little bit, maybe just to start, to give you an idea of yeah. the time we're talking about, the sort of place we're talking about. It's set in 1972, which was the worst year of the 30-year conflict in Northern Ireland. As you know, over 3,000 people died during the Troubles, but about 500 of them died in that particular year. Which, looking back, it's it's horrendous. You're talking an average of 40 people a month. So the scale of that is, it's, it's hard to imagine nowadays. I, I grew up in West Belfast, Nationalist West Belfast, Andersonstown, which a lot of your listeners will have heard of. I was the oldest of five children, and I, the only girl, I had four brothers. So a lot of my time I'd have spent writing my diary. It was a thing I did in the evenings. I mean, you have to remember back then, teenagers, they didn't have Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, none of, no social media. So I suppose we a lot of us kept diaries. And maybe that was our way of not talking to each other, but having an internal communication, really an internal discussion. This is an entry from the 14th of May, Sunday, the 14th of May, 1972. I got up dreading the newspaper's headlines. The death toll from last night is seven. I went over to Mass. The road was littered with glass, bricks, stones, etc. When we came home, Mummy and Daddy decided to go to Cooley. My mother's from Cooley and County Louth. They'll get peace there and get their heads showered. John, my brother, and I stayed at home. I intended doing some maths revision, but I didn't succeed. I couldn't settle amid the shooting and the bombing. It was terrifying to know that there are other human beings at the receiving end. There's trouble on the Donegal Road. The M1 motorway is closed. There's trouble in Ballymurphy, Trouble in Andersonstown. We watched the news, still listening to the shooting. A 17-year-old boy, a Protestant, and a 13-year-old girl, a Catholic, both shot dead. The paras have moved in to clear the area. We're dreading the consequences. At 11, I go to bed and pray for peace. So that's one entry from An Ordinary Sunday in May in 1972, written by me as a 16-year-old at the time.
1: That is just
0: absolutely shocking to hear. That's, it's hard to believe that this was happening in this land. It's it's like somebody writing it from Ukraine today.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I look at the news coverage of places like Ukraine of Syria, and you see children out playing in the streets um, in Palestine. You see children playing football, girls and boys running around, and devastation around them. And you think, how can that be happening? How can they do that? And yet, when I discovered my diary, I realised that's the sort of life that we were leading. You we were just getting on with life, doing the normal things, while there's absolute chaos and carnage around us.
0: But clearly, you were you were at sixteen years of age. You you were conscious of the sheer brutality of it. You mentioned in that excerpt there that a couple of teenagers were killed.
2: Yeah, and that that was was very common. I suppose I have to say I came from quite a political house. My parents were involved in the civil rights movement. My father would have been among the founding members of the SDLP. So we were always aware of what was going on. We were listening to the news. We were following, just aware of what was happening and and I suppose encouraged to have an interest and a concern for what was happening. 1972, I think the defining moment was Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday happened and I wouldn't have been the only one who suddenly became aware that all of us were vulnerable, that being young, being innocent didn't spare anybody. And I think that was a terrifying moment of realisation. It's the moment when you realised that the troubles, they're here. Any of us can be impacted by them because I'm a young girl. It doesn't mean I'm safe. Lots of of teenagers were killed in the troubles.
0: So but before Bloody Sunday, what what was the sense then that you weren't at as much risk, that it was just you know in, in the wrong place at the wrong time.
2: I think before Bloody Sunday, I mean the, the troubles officially started in 1969 is the date that's that's always uh, cited. 1969, and we would have been aware. I would have been aware certainly of the sectarian violence <laughs> happening in the Falls Road. Uh, I had two elderly aunts who lived at the lower falls near what's now known as the peace line in other words the sectarian interface so when the you know, houses were being burnt down we became aware that we lived in an abnormal society but we but it didn't pray on our minds it was all happening somewhere else there were protest marches there was a low level of violence I mean there had been awful atrocities in the months before it internment happened the previous introduced the previous year I suppose that brought violence to our doorsteps in terms of rioting street violence that was in august 1971 and our community began to be impacted directly but there wasn't that same sense of 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 terror i think that came with the start of 1972 and and the increase in violence
0: and then bloody sunday obviously happened and then was it an an immediate impact then that you, you were thinking i could just be walking down the street and not come home
2: yes i think once once bloody sunday happened and we became we were watching the funerals there was widespread violence where we lived our school life became disrupted public transport would be taken off and rioting was just a daily occurrence the army were very visible in the streets so life wasn't normal after that it just wasn't for many years
1: and presumably now like you would have known people in in school who would have who would have joined the provisional IRA
2: I didn't at the time I didn't at the time Um, I remember there was one girl um who had joined and who was convicted of armed robbery or something. See, we were young. Mm-hmm. We were still talking about 16-year-olds. But people talk about the IRA and what the IRA did. And the reality is that the IRA were the people around us. The IRA came from our community. They weren't people who came from any strangers, they didn't come from outer space. They were people who went to the same church as us, went to the same schools, walked the same roads, went to the same same shops. You know, so it it's just the whole community, you became involved in something and were just carried along by it. And your life was adapted as you went along. You know, you adjusted. Yeah. To
0: to me now, the, the IRA, I don't have any major political affiliations one way or the other, but you see the iconic images of the masked men with guns at, at, at these set-up checkpoints at the end of the streets. And they, they look pretty scary. They look like, in, in some popular imagination, the bogeymen. But they weren't to you. You you knew these guys.
2: We we knew them. They were we, and at that stage, uh, the troubles they were seen as the protectors of our community, because sectarian violence was rife. I knew three people who were killed in that particular year, by loyalists. So, even though the IRA were doing appalling things to the whole community and to my community, it's only in hindsight that I could appreciate that.
0: Mm. But what you well, your time, like what, did, like what, what did you think of these masked figures standing at the end of a darkened
2: street? I suppose if you're honest, as a teenager, there was an excitement about it, and and I'd have to say that um there was an excitement about rioting, there was possibly a glamour about these people because they were dark figures. They weren't doing anything to me. I wasn't afraid. You're, I was wary of them. Yeah. I'd have been wary if the IRA, there'd be. The odd gun attack would have been carried out from the street I lived in, and I have to say I lived in a very middle class part of Andersonstown. We weren't, you know, I don't claim to be at the, at the cold face or in the heart of this conflict, but vehicles would have been hijacked, houses would have been taken over to use as a vantage point for shooting, shooting at the army or the police, and they didn't instil the terror that loyalist paramilitaries did. Yeah. We saw loyalists as the people who were attacking attacking us and that we had to be afraid of, and whereas in the past we were told that the army had come in to protect us mm. after the violence of 1969, um, and to keep the two communities apart, Bloody Sunday changed all that, changed that perception mm. of the army as protectors, they became part mm. of the of the problem.
0: What did you feel uh, when you walked down the street and you saw a British squaddy? Presumed- it was in-
2: intimidating, it was intimidating
0: were they Um, you're you're going to
2: school sorry sorry Emer. presumably they weren't too much older than your good self exactly exactly but at that time i wasn't thinking there's somebody who's 18 um you saw somebody with a rifle crouched down on the street pointing a rifle in your direction or a saracen armored car would drive past you with rifles out through the window and it instilled fear in you it was frightening it was frightening yeah
0: and same with the police then you'd view them the same
2: Exactly the same. The police would have been very low profile Um, by the time 1972 came. It had become the military were running ruling the streets. It wasn't the police. The police were there very much in the background. Police patrol would be accompanied by soldiers, but the police had taken a backwards step. Definitely. Um, It was very much a militarised society that we lived in. There were huge army encampments throughout Andersonstown army bases. I mean, at one stage later in the year, after Operation Motorman, when the army came in to break up the areas that had been taken over by the IRA in the no-go areas in Belfast and Derry, the army became encamped in the schools in our area. So you had places, that became forts, they were known as Silver City as a fort, Fort George and Derry. They were just army encampments, huge corrugated walls, around them, lookout posts, barbed wire along the top. There were fortresses in the middle of your of your everyday life. Yeah.
1: It sounds and, so bizarre. It sounds. And so all bizarre. the security forces essentially were divided along sectarian lines. I mean, the REC was essentially a, a Protestant force. The army obviously was the British, and okay, they wanted to be mixed there. And then the UDR that came after the specials. That that like, there was about twenty percent, I think, Catholics represented at the start, but that went down to about five percent. Well, right? once
2: they became then they became targets for the IRA. That yeah. went down. And we grew up, you know, in a society where you didn't know policemen. You didn't go to school with people who joined the police force. It just it wasn't done. There was an exception who had joined the RUC. So, so you had no connection with your, your local police force or police service, as it came to be called. And I, I think what, the, what astonished me when I found the diary was to discover how normal our life was in the middle of all this. It sounds ironic to say it, but we were living a very normal life in the midst of this madness and mayhem yeah yeah
0: so the diary puts but, it in context for you then
2: yeah um, maybe I should explain how I found the diary um, yeah it's good I,
0: that. yeah
2: I had, I had worked as a journalist for nearly 40 years and I left the BBC in 2010 and I was clearing out the way you do clear out after a big shift in your life you know it's like moving house moving changing jobs and I found a briefcase that I actually was given when I worked in RTE. It was a press pack, a briefcase that was given during the Pope's visit to Ireland in 1979. And the journalists were all given these lovely cream briefcases. And I opened it, and in the middle of all the stuff that I'd piled in over the years, I found a red diary, a diary covered with red butterflies. And I thought, what's that? Oh, that's the diary I used to write. And I opened it, and it's full from page to page, schoolgirl handwriting, and 1972... And I thought, wow, because I'd forgotten about the diary. Um, If you had said to me, did you keep a diary in 72? I would have said, probably not. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. And at that time, I was working with the Bloody Sunday families. It was on the eve of the Sabre report coming out. And I obviously looked to see, did I record anything about Bloody Sunday? And I did. And I was shocked to see the detail. If you like, I can read an extract from that. Please do. If I can find it. Because... Right, Sunday, January the 30th. I got up early because everyone was going to Cooley. Again, this is where my grandparents lived. Um, I decided to stay at home with my brothers. Mummy and daddy didn't get going until late. There was a bomb in the M1. it was closed. They were stopped and searched four times. I spent the afternoon supposed to be studying, but couldn't settle. There was a big Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association demonstration in March planned for dairy. I was hoping it would go off okay. However, in tears, we saw the six o'clock news paratroopers shot 28 people at it, 13 of them dead, including young boys. The army came on television and told lie after lie, accused people of being bombers and gunmen. There were terrible pictures on television, the army bending down to take aim at men and boys fleeing from the shooting, shooting them dead in the backs. An Italian reporter came on and called them murderers, a father and son fleeing with their hands above their head, were shot, a boy and girlfriend, the, the girl was shot, the boy went to help her, he killed him. Now, it wasn't actually a girl shot, but again, this was just what I saw on the day. I've never been so heartbroken and hopeless in my whole life before. I'm sure everyone is full of hatred for the army. It's certain there's going to be serious trouble. So, that's as a 16 year old, you know. That's extremely right.
0: detail for, for a 16 year old. For 16,
2: all- and to say the army came on and told lies after lies, telling yeah. people, calling people bombers and government. Like, as a 16 year old, 40 years ago, we could see it we knew it and yet it has taken a lifetime for those families to be cleared to have the names of their loved ones cleared you know so it it was sorry
0: sorry for interrupting i go ahead sorry
2: no no that's i think i've just finished what i was going to say there you know
0: yeah sorry sorry just have so many questions bubbling up like the diary it appears to have been Sounds like it was written by a veteran reporter.
2: <laughs> well, I didn't know at the time at that stage I thought I was going to be a social worker. I didn't really know what I was going to be, and I kept thinking I'd be a social worker in the absence of anything else. It was quite a few years before I decided to do journalism. But I kept scrapbooks during those years as well. And I recorded every shooting, every bombing, photographs, statistics. So I think I had that nerdish interest in what was going on, an obsession with what was going on, which probably stood me in good stead years later when I did get into journalism, you know. So The interest was there. But I think what I was trying to say there earlier was in the midst of all this, those extracts that I've read were very violent. There are other days where I just talk about becoming obsessed with the idea of getting a pair of navy trousers. I don't know why I wanted them because there was no social life. You didn't venture outside your own area, you didn't go to pubs or cinemas or it was just too dangerous. Even going shopping was risky at that time. But I became obsessed with getting a pair of navy trousers and hounded my mother. To take me into the centre of Belfast, and going to the centre of Belfast, the IRA were setting off bombs left, right, and centre. You were—it was highly dangerous. But it only when I read the diary, I was struck by the selfishness of teenagers. Um, You're so caught up in your own world. I mean, what parents like mine were going through raising five children in that environment—a daughter who just wants a pair of trousers. And has teenage tantrums because she doesn't get them. There was one particular day my mother promised me right I'll take you into town when I come home from work. She worked part-time and I waited for and waited for and she didn't show up and she eventually came in about five o'clock and I was you know I thought we were going into town and she had actually got caught in a gun battle on her way home from work and couldn't had to take shelter on her way home. In that gun battle a mother of 10 was shot dead, who was out shopping. It could as easily have been my mother. And yet all I was concerned about was I didn't get out for the trousers. Now, in the diary, I cursed the IRA. I said, curse the IRA for detaining my mother. But my only concern was the trousers. And it's, just, it's, it's, it's sobering and it's, it's, it's humbling to see how children, how teenagers... Are so involved in their own lives, we obviously thought we were invincible. And I think teenagers probably still do. And yet this was happening all around us.
1: It's very emotional. Like you're you're you can, you know, it must have been a very difficult thing to do the book. You're you're reliving. That because you've you've expressed it in such vivid detail that you must you must be right in that space when you when when you're reading out these extracts. It
2: it was very difficult. I mean, I I didn't set out to write the book. Um, when when I found the diary, I uh I wrote a piece about the savile Inquiry after I found the diary, just with the extract about Bloody Sunday and saying, look, I saw this forty years ago, um, and the Irish Times published it, and I was working as a freelancer at that stage, and it was picked up by BBC Radio Four. And they interviewed me about the diary then one morning and I got a request then from a publisher in London, had I ever considered writing a book? And I was saying no. So that's how it came about. Now, the book took another couple of years and I was very lucky then when I did it that Marion Press, Connor Graham jumped on it and published it. But it was a hard book to write because I had to read the whole diary first and it was a whole world that I had forgotten. Yeah. And they say, with the benefit of being 40 years older, having children of my own, mm-hmm. Having left Belfast and being able to see the violence that had been uh, inflicted on my community by the IRA, as well as by loyalists, as well as by security forces, just give you a totally different perspective on the close-up perspective I had as a sixteen-year-old.
0: It's yeah, incredible, Scott sure. It really is. It's just so personal. You're, you're not a, you know, a journalist who grew up in the midst of this it's it's you're kind of reliving it as derek said there i mean you're you're a little bit emotional now speaking to us about it
2: yeah no it's 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 hard um and uh, because i wanted to make well it, it was it's contemporaneous so as you say it's not done with it's not memory playing tricks um i think the only trick that memory has played is that i'd forgotten how awful it was yeah i don't know how the brain works that it trains you not to remember all this you know um I was shocked to remember it um I was disturbed for my parents my family my friends myself I recorded so many deaths maybe as a footnote soldier shot dead man shot dead woman shot dead sometimes I'd give the details depending on how much information had come in on the late night news because as I said earlier we didn't have the 24-hour news sources that we have now so you waited every morning to hear what had happened overnight but I went back to cross-check the details of those incidents and lost lives and when I was writing the book I sat maybe to four o'clock five o'clock in the morning sometimes going through those details and the personal the, just to humanize what I just had as a one-line man shot dead and then you realize maybe he's father of a large family maybe he's somebody who has a drink problem maybe it's and one stage was it, a soldier um British soldier shot dead and then I read about this soldier he was the father of twin girls and all of a sudden, everything becomes humanised. Before that, we're just statistics, and you realise the scale of the human tragedy that the troubles were, you know.
0: And, and over, over what period of time does the diary cover? And within that period of time, how many deaths do you think you, you recorded?
2: It, it, it covers from the 1st the of January to the, to the 31st of December. And so there were 500 people killed that year. I recorded, I recorded them as I became aware of them. I would. I went. I was very lucky. I escaped to France for three weeks in the middle of it, which I have actually been criticised by somebody who said, "What do you know about the troubles? You went to France for three weeks." You know, I went. I was doing A-level French, and I went to stay with the family in exchange for teaching, trying to teach their children English. But I always say my, my story isn't the story of the troubles. I'm not claiming to be one of the most effective people. I was an ordinary 16 year old girl living in a middle class area of Andersonstown, who had nobody directly. In her family killed I was very lucky nobody imprisoned so it's just it's my version it's my story of of the troubles but you know the 31st of December New Year's Eve at the end of that year worst New Year's Eve that I've ever experienced in my life we have no one here with whom to celebrate anyway there isn't much to celebrate at 10 o'clock I went upstairs to have a bath intending to go to bed I felt though that everybody else would probably be staying up to welcome in the new year I should do the same there's an IRA truce ends tonight I waited for midnight and went outside to hear if any horns were blowing, as was tradition. Not a cat stirring, absolute silence. I couldn't bear it. I started to cry. Everyone is too afraid to go out now. I hate Belfast. I went to bed and cried myself to sleep. The thought of another year like the one just gone by is too unbearable to contemplate. All I can do is dread 1973. The white paper is due out in the spring. This, plus assassinations, plus the freedom of the UDA, doesn't carry much hope of a happy new year. I just hope that I and the rest of the family are still here this time next year. Wow. And and that's how it ended, you know. So so it it it, it was it was upsetting and disturbing to come across. And I'm glad I've written the book because mm. so many people have contacted me since it was published from all over the world, and so many sad stories and happy stories. Uh I mean I've, I've a couple of um I said, uh, members of the diaspora have written to me, talking about the impact that Belfast Days has given into their parents' lives. One man who was 13 children in his family, his siblings scattered to England, America, Australia, after the mother died in 1972. He contacted me to say his nieces and nephews finally understood why their parents had left Belfast. Somebody else contacted me from Australia. She was born in Australia, couldn't understand sacrifice that her parents had made leaving belfast why would they have left belfast at that time and they did i've had people in norway germany contacting me because they'd no idea just didn't understand what it was like for for ordinary people you know so it's um and a man contacted me and was very sad from the north of england to say he'd read it and he wondered i described one particularly gruesome death sectarian death in it, and he contacted me to see if by any chance it was be his uncle, because his uncle had died and the family had broken up. So many families were shattered by the troubles. A lot of people in the, in the south of Ireland contacted me. Families that had been broken up because somebody had been killed. Circumstances weren't known. Families don't talk about it, and relationships just disintegrated between brothers and sisters, parents and children. Um, so that's that's the damage that is continuing across generations, and it's still there to this day. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And and most people, you say, were were ordinary. Folk like yourself were non-combatant; yeah. weren't all willing participants. No, um, and you know, I know you. you just to clarify, so as maybe for for listeners that might understand, your 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 father was one of the founding members of the SDLP. They they did represent the middle class. They did represent the middle ground. John Hume. there
2: was a nationalist party, all right. Nationalist but, you know, party, but totally opposed you, to violence as, exactly. as the way of doing things. And and it was difficult. And I can I can remember. There'd be rows, not rows, but arguments at the dinner table because my father was trying to talk the message of peace. You don't take, there's no justification for killing people. And yet, awful things were happening. And I had four teenage brothers who didn't subscribe to that hot-blooded, you want retaliation, you want revenge, why do we have to put up with this? You know, so so I think the role of parents, um, it's just immense and vastly underestimated. Parents and schools, because that's the only thing I talk about throughout the diary, the schools, the schools made no allowance for it. At the time, we resented it. We missed a lot of school, I missed a lot of school, but it was the one place you're actually safe. The trouble stopped at the gates of the school. They weren't allowed to impact, and you were supposed to wear your uniform and do your revision for exams and and that was the right thing again looking back we got through the education system we got out i got to university i got a career we moved on you know not everybody was so lucky
0: and and how do you feel i mean you did mention that one instance with with as derek said very vividly when you bring in detail about a particular item of clothing that you wanted how do you feel about your parents now emir how do you hold them in
2: I hold them in awe. I mean, I always, well, I always did admire what they, they, what, how they reared us. And we were a very happy, ordinary family. But um, they're both dead now. I know, was just dead a couple of years ago. My father died earlier. He died before the IRA, first IRA ceasefire, sadly. I just see that the likes of my parents, there were so many ordinary parents like them who reared families, who got them out of school, who kept the show on the road, who kept life functioning as normal, trying to make houses a safe place trying to stop children getting involved, getting involved in violence or putting themselves at unnecessary risk. And it must have been so difficult, so difficult to do. They were they were all heroes. And all across, all across Ireland there are people like that, ordinary men and women, from morning to night, who must have been just living through hell. Yeah.
0: And what what about your own children?
2: My own children, I, I live in Port Stuart. I lived in Dublin for a while and then I got married and moved to Port Stewart and County Derry on the North Coast. The three of them they read the book and they were shocked and appalled by what they read, that anybody could have gone through this and come out relatively normal. They were they were very lucky. They went to a school. They go to they, they're all grown up now and, and have their own lives away from here, but they went to school where they were, they grouped, it's not an integrated school but it's a school attended by Protestants they have Protestants among their friends they have no sense of fear they're very confident in their Irishness which I never was they're not afraid to have Irish names when I was growing up to called Eamor O'Callaghan you're marked out as you're Catholic you're a nationalist and you felt you're, you're uncomfortable to put it mildly like I say in the book I didn't know a Protestant until I went to university I did not know a Protestant. All my family were Catholics, all my neighbours were Catholics, my teachers, the 40,000 people around me were all Catholics. So I didn't meet a Protestant until I went to university, which my children just find that's it's amazing because they have been reared and educated and have Protestants among their best friends. And it sounds so sectarian and divisive even talking like that, but that is the reality of 1972, Belfast, yeah.
1: And not not so many and not very many Catholics or whatever wrong on that would have actually made it to
2: to university well, they would have they would have okay. because but that's yeah from from the eleven plus came in and um Catholics were able to benefit from a grammar school education education became such a huge thing and it was a huge thing in, in my family and my parents' generation that we were able to take advantage of grammar school education the first generation really of Catholics to do so a lot they were people before us but all of a sudden Catholics were able to advance to get jobs in in journalism in law in medicine um things that previous generations wouldn't have done
1: okay okay
2: yeah. and was, you, was your parents
1: like I mean I you know obviously being political as well would there have been any fear of being a target
2: no no no, no because they yeah. were low-key and it was it, yeah yeah it was just that they were They weren't big political figures. They were just, I suppose, community activists. Well, my father would have been, he'd be described now as a community activist and involved with welfare work with internees, that sort of thing. You know, so he wasn't out campaigning in the streets or, well, he was, but he wasn't vocal, put it like that. He wouldn't have been recognisable. He preferred to write and to do it that way, you know, low key.
1: Yeah, it's, had, it's had a bit I mean the whole that your your whole experience obviously has led you to the work that you do today and you've done an awful lot of work I, I noticed before you went on you, you you were talking to me about about some of that but certainly I mean that's obviously a, as a result of of your experiences growing up be fair yes. to say. Yeah, yeah
2: yeah yeah definitely I think it does shape you you know and and, and not everyone is see Belfast even Belfast different parts of Belfast were less impacted I know people who lived on the other side of the city, maybe a couple of miles away from me. Protestants, and I don't even like calling them Protestants, but that's the way it was. And there were Protestant areas and Catholic areas, and there still are to a certain extent in Belfast. But more upper class areas as well, which just were not impacted to the same degree at all, mm. and were quite oblivious of what was going on at a lower level in communities like mine. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's bit amazingly important though to to have that that, that piece of history that's real history that for generations you can go back and we this is what it was like for. well it's
2: it's what it was like for for one girl that's what i keep Wonder. saying for one for one 16 year old who grew up in Andersonstown. town if i had if i had been born on the other side of belfast into a loyalist unionist household my life would have been very different if my father had been a policeman instead of working in the post office it would have been very difficult if i had been born in cardiff or edinburgh or london my life would have been very different or dublin
1: or Dublin, yeah. Or Dublin.
2: Yeah. My mother, as I say, came from County Louth, so all her family lived across the border. Um, and yeah. we had very little contact with them. They didn't come north.
1: Okay.
2: But, but we went south. So our escape was to get over the border, and that sense of yeah. freedom to get over the border, to go to Sligo or Dublin or Navin or Cooley in County Lyes. Yeah. Well,
1: cou- cou- coolies just about over the border
2: just over the border <laughs> just, just about, over the border yeah, but to us it, freedom, really to us it represented total freedom yeah
0: but it's yeah. a valid point we we grew up in the 70s ourselves and i remember all i know about the north was do you remember the tv programs would be interrupted saying with the key holder of yeah yeah
2: yeah, yeah that's yeah. all yeah. we
0: knew about it like that's we're right, that's right. oblivious to it the only direct, not direct, impact wouldn't go so far as to say that as my dad was a journalist himself he used to travel to the north to cover race horse meetings. Right. My mother would, at those times when he went up there, that's when she would be extremely fraught at home. There would be that kind of atmosphere until his car pulled up in the evening time. And of course as a kid on the rare occasion that we went with him, we'd come across an army checkpoint and it was all very
2: exciting. exciting, Exciting. Yeah. yeah, British
0: soldiers with their blacked out faces and yeah. And But we had absolutely no idea. I grew up, obviously as a teenager. I, yeah. I think I was more fascinated with a, a leather pair of trousers as a, <laughs> both, yeah. the ones that you would like But th- that I, it really I can relate to that because somehow, despite what the, the, the trauma and 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 the devastation around you, as a teenager these are the things you you, that mean so much to you and in a way maybe it was a way of coping
2: I I think it was a way of coping you know an obsession was following the charts listening to the radio um music even though you weren't getting out to go to see any of these nobody was coming to very few were coming to Belfast in terms of musical acts or anything but you you still yearned for it and I think my three weeks in France I had a taste of of what real life was like and um it's cliched to talk about you remember the past in black and white but when i think back to belfast then it's it's black and white it's monochrome it was depressing gray grim place i suppose fear was the overriding sense where i go to france and it was blue skies and sunshine and color and uh, a a different world it was a different world yeah
0: do you feel cheated outside of the the big quote-unquote important stuff? Just the very fact that you couldn't socialise, that you didn't have a teenage life mm. that was sort of taken away from you that you couldn't experience that.
2: No, because because I had a life and the life I had is the life that made me what I am and has given me the values and the interests that I have. So no, I don't. I'm just I just realise I'm very, very lucky that mm. I came out of it unscathed and they say nobody belonged to me was killed. Yeah. Okay,
1: okay. Interesting. So fantastic. You know, it's been real, real pleasure, and so so glad you've uh, been able to share that experience. And for every all the, the listeners out there, please do give Belfast Days a read. I think you might be surprised. I mean, very very cute. I uh, just, I, I suppose the listeners can't see what we see here, Emer, This is the, the truth. This is your honesty, and this is this is you. You've shared yourself with the masses, and uh, more power to you. Thank you very much for that.
0: And just before we sign off, what would you say now to that 16-year-old writing that diary if you had an opportunity to somehow speak to her at the time?
2: What would I say to her? I would say, don't give up, keep dreaming. It's going to get better.
0: And with that note, on that note, that that's something, a lesson that we could all, perhaps in challenging times, through the turmoil the world has been in recently and is indeed now is is
2: is hope isn't it him it is it is i think i think that's what keeps us going at least it, it will pass yeah everything passes and i think if we keep that in mind
0: absolutely Emer callan what a real pleasure I, I think that's one of the more emotional yeah. historians episodes we've we've engaged in so far it, just very very generous and very open very honest Thank you very
2: much for having me. Not it's at I've all. i enjoyed it.
0: Good. I hope you did. I hope you did. I know it's I a weighty subject, but told in such a human way, it's very touching.
1: Very touching indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. All right, Emer. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Eimer. Well, well, Neil, yeah. That really was something I, I could just, it was coming through the screen. That was the thing. Yeah. You couldn't help but be part of that story. And you don't come across that too often, I don't think, in what we do. You hope for it, I suppose, but that was that was uh, very true and honest, yeah. Oh, that set me back
0: on my feet. I mean, you know, I'm a journalist. Right. we have interviewed many, many people over the years. And then when you see that real emotion that e- e- Emer was obviously expressing, really pulls you into the story doesn't it like and I really yeah. relate to the way she was saying about Belfast and her memories black and white and France was all color I remember as a child I had no experience of what was happening in Belfast I just remember it being a in my mind a grim place the north was just grim up north as they say in England it was it was just not a place I ever wanted to go to and that was and I was younger then I was like not even a teenager so to grow up as she experienced it and obviously to stumble across the diary she didn't even know she had.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then it was it's just great that it's got out there because I said there's not too much of those testimonies of of the of the time that are true to the time because it was recorded in the present day back then. That was the thing. And that that's hit you know, that that's that's the best historical find you can ever kind of hope for. Just come across that those, those notes or that stuff as it happened everybody else have a lot to live up to I'd say that's a uh, yeah
0: great great, sorry, great, great evening on the history yeah, yeah from all, all great guests we had and thank you listeners maybe we don't say that enough it's something that we do I mean we are seeing the numbers increase across our social media and the listening's Listorship rising slowly because we're only starting off, but just goes to show that the interest is out there in the history and how important. Keep, keep saying that just how important it is. Yeah. You know, they don't say cliche histories in the past, it's not, it's still happening it happened right up to yesterday. And people like Emer Callan capture that.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. That's it. That was brilliant. We'll, uh, we'll see you all back again shortly. And, and please do give us a like or a couple of stars on, on Apple Podcasts and all that kind of good stuff. It really helps attract people to the show.
0: Yeah. Check out, keep on, on Twitter and Facebook, all the social media stuff, engage with us there, and we can keep this going. That's yeah. what we intend to do. Have a good evening, Neil.
1: Have a good Take evening, Thanks all for right, the historians. Bye. Good night.